Welcome to Plodcast, episode 27. Good to have you here. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, hope you enjoy it. So I, w- I want, to, for our opening segment here, I'd like to talk about Darwinism and uh, the, the difficulty or the challenge that Darwinism is facing, uh, is facing today. Um, it's really striking. Uh, Origin of Species, the thing that set the whole thing off, um, was published in 1859, and uh, b- basically um, evolutionary thinking went through the intelligentsia like fire through a, a hayloft. You know, it ba- basically was the the intelligentsia, the the intellectual world, capitulated to Darwinism very very quickly. And so the question uh, arises: Here we are. Um, you know, a century and a half later, and Darwinism still hasn't conquered. Uh, Darwinism is still challenged. Uh, uh, Darwinism is being continually challenged by uh, by scientists within res- their respected ranks, by scientists who've been ostracized for challenging it, and by common uh, uh, scientific laymen from outside saying this this just doesn't make sense. Um, and th- it, it appears that uh, what, what happened was, uh, what's happening is a variation of, um, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. So what, what Darwin did was he gave a, a um, superficially plausible mechanism, what Herbert Spencer called survival of the fittest, um, um, the process of natural selection, um, and this mechanism was something that people could seize on and say, "See, here, this is how it could have happened." Um, if you if you look back, ba- basically, if you deny the creation, if you deny that God is a creator God, then y- you are of necessity stuck with some form of evolutionary thought. And that, and you you can see that evolution, transformation of one thing into another, is basic to the pagan mind. Uh, you see it in Ovid's Metamorphoses. Uh, basically, um, if if time and chance acting on matter is all that is, then you can only account for what is pr- presently here as that coming from something else in, in the pagan worldview. Everything turns into everything. Anything can turn into anything else, and so uh, that that is that has been basic to the pagan mind forever, for centuries. Um, and what Darwin did is he gave us a a um, he gave a a superficially superficially plausible mechanism. Oh yeah, natural selection. Uh, what happens is you have a, a mutation. And that mutation bestows uh, a little survivability advantage. And because the critter with that survivability advantage survives, then that survivability advantage is passed on to its progeny and so on. And so this is how uh, the world captures beneficent mutations, uh, beneficial mutations. So you have a, a thousand mutations, uh, 
um, let's say 900 of them are crippling mutations, negative, 50 of them are neutral, and 50 of them are beneficial, um, beneficial with regard to survival, then the, the creatures with those 50 beneficial mutations will do a better job at surviving, which means that their offspring are, are going to be more plentiful, etc. Now, uh, a lot of, there are logical problems with this. One of them is that survival of the fittest is tautological. Um, aren't you really just saying survival of the survivors? <laughs> um, aren't you saying that those animals which survive um, are, are the survivors? How is, that, how is that helping us? Well, the, the, diff- the real difficulty uh, comes in when you step back um, 20 paces or 50 paces and you look at what's actually, uh, what's actually going on. Um, when, everywhere you look, you see what I, would, what I can only describe as exquisite engineering. Um, engineering that is so far beyond if, if you took all the money in the world and you gave all the money in the world as a research grant to all the scientists in the world, uh, how long would it take them to build a butterfly's wing? How, how long would it take them to build a human ankle? How long would it take them to, to build a blood system that clots um, so, that, so that when you cut your finger... Um, in the, there's a built-in repair kit so that two weeks later you look at your finger and that cut that was there is no longer there. And every, everywhere you turn, everywhere you look, whether it's um, uh, the gnats and midges in the air or it's the, the, um, the design of a maple tree or the, you know, you, you, look, you look at all this exquisite engineering and you say, what are the odds? Uh, so what are the odds that each one of those stages is the result of 50 beneficial mutations out of 1,000? Right, right. So we've got the neutral ones that may go on for a while. You've got the destructive ones that cause that uh, kind of um, tree or that kind of creature to die out. Uh, and then you've got the, the beneficial ones. Um, and you, everywhere you look, you see sophisticated systems that are what Michael Behe calls uh, irreducibly, irreducibly complex. So you don't have, um, it's not like you evolve a little, to use his illustration, it's not like you evolve a little wooden platform that catches a few mice and that's going along so well that next it evolves a little spring and it catches a few more mice. No, you, in order for it to catch any mice at all, it has to be the whole, you have to have the whole mousetrap. And, and a mousetrap is a simplistic, rudimentary contraption compared to um, all the high-tech, sophisticated engineering that goes into virtually any living thing that you can point to. In Darwin's day, when we didn't really know what the um, internal workings of the cell looked like, it was it, it was easy to say, well, you've got these cells, and and inside the cells there's stuff, you know, like like juice. Um, 
but we go down there and we find libraries. So uh, the DNA strand, the double helix, is a, a gargantuan library, and it's full of information. Um, and information. So here, here's the ne- here's the next obstacle. Um, it's like um, if I if I point to a sign on the wall that says no smoking, um, and l- let's say um, I'm doing that because let's say it's a bus terminal or a train uh, airport somewhere, and someone just lit up, and I um, and I point to the sign that says and I, I say it says no no smoking there. What would what would we say if the person responded that sign is just paper and ink that's all it is there's nothing there except paper and ink well on one level that's exactly true you you would not be able to go over there and subject the poster to a chemical analysis and find anything other than paper and ink the only thing you would find is paper and or ink you'd find the now there's no way you could break the break the sign down into its chemical components and find the information that's there. The information, no smoking, is not material. The information is spiritual. <laughs> the, 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 the information doesn't weigh anything. The information uh, doesn't have a particular color. The ink has a color, but the information has no color, has no weight, has no mass. It's entirely spiritual so that's what information that's what information is so when someone goes down into every living cell and they they don't find, they don't find we well, first just think about what it would be like if we went down there and looking in the microscope you saw a no smoking sign that that sign containing that rudimentary amount of information would would um, overthrow the whole system of atheistic unbelief, right? If we went down inside the living cell and found in English a no smoking sign. But when then you but that's not we don't find a no smoking sign. We so we turn aside and look at this immense library of information. And the information is is communicated to us by means of material, just like the paper and ink communicates to us the will of someone that we not smoke in this place. But the information itself is not material, and and this is I think uh, uh, a reality that uh, Darwinism uh, that causes Darwinism simply to shipwreck. Okay, Plodcast 27 book review time. Uh, this, uh, uh, this episode, I'd like to talk about uh, a new book just out called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. Love Thy Body by uh, Nancy Piercy. I, I really like uh, Piercy's work, particularly the, uh, the work she's been doing in recent years, basically applying the, the fundamental framework and insights of Francis Schaeffer to the contemporary scene. Uh, she's writing, uh, writing things that Francis Schaeffer would likely have uh, been writing had he still been with us. She's, she's been a very adept um, uh, disciple of Schaeffer's and also 
a um, a very shrewd thinker in her own right. Love thy body is no is no uh, different. It's it's really good. Uh, she, what she's doing is taking uh, Schaefer's familiar upper story, lower story uh, illustration, and applying it to the modern world's uh, despising of the human body and the different ways that the human body is despised. Um, and, and uh, well, just a few examples, uh, you know, homosexuality would be one, abortion would be another one, um, uh, the, the hookup culture of, of uh, free love, promiscuity, uh, would be another, uh, would be another uh, way uh, that we despise the body. Euthanasia would be another way, infanticide would be another way. And, um, and one of the things she does is, uh, the, the, in Schaefer's thinking, there's this, there's this upper story, where, which is up for grabs, and then there's the lower story of the material world. And the way, the way we've, um, the, the cul-de-sac we've gotten ourselves into is this. We assume, in, our, in the materialistic West, we assume that the lower story is the world of fact, um, data, scientific fact, the way it is. And then the upper story is the realm of value, right? The upper story is the realm of value. And if you were to ask whose value, there's a hidden assumption of, well, each individual's value. Everybody rolls their own. Everyone picks their own um, set of values. Well, not quite everyone. If you're, if you're unborn or if you're an elderly person in, the, uh, in a nursing home about ready to be uh, euthanized, you don't get to pick your own, but somebody picks your own, and it's, it's all done on the pretense of, of individual choice. So f- to illustrate how this works, uh, and, and Piercy does a very good job of, of showing this connection, uh, in, um, well, I, let me back up for a minute. When, when Nancy and I were having our, um, uh, raising our family, when we were having our kids, uh, ultrasounds were just coming online. They were just, uh, they were a new thing, okay? And uh, I remember one ultrasound of one of our kids. I forget which one it was. Maybe, maybe they were just coming online with our third, with Rachel. But I remember looking at um, this ultrasound. And ultrasounds at, in, in that primitive Precambrian era uh, looked like someone had taken a Polaroid snapshot of a distant galaxy and then Xeroxed it 17 times on a bad Xerox copier. And you had these black and white smudges that someone looked at and interpreted. It was, uh, <laughs> ultrasounds were not impressive, at least not to me back in the day. Um, but now you look at ultrasound imaging and you can, you can see the child's facial expressions. You can, it, it's just amazing uh, how, how far um, technology has taken us in uh, being able to see with our own eyes the humanity of uh, the child in the womb. Okay, now what Piercy shows is that uh, in the face of this um, hard to argue with evidence that that the baby in the womb is a, is in fact a baby, um, uh, the the pro-abortion forces have retreated to this two-story distinction. They say yes, it's undeniable. It's 
it's undeniable that the unborn child is a human being. Uh, it's undeniable that the unborn child is biologically human. And it's undeniable that this biologically uh, human, unique individual begins at conception. Uh, we know that. that. That is something that is anchored in the realm of fact. But what they do is they then say, ah, but uh, in, in effect they say, ah, but we live in a two-story uh, universe. This is a human, but is it a person? Okay, so the question of the personhood of the individual is a second-story thing, and that's up, that's for the courts to decide, or that's for medical doctors to decide, or that's for the mother and her doctor to decide, that's for... Um, death panels to decide when it comes time to start um, bumping people off because they they are too expensive. Uh, we finally got the socialized health care we were demanding and then we discover that we can't deliver the uh, care to the elderly and because of that um, uh, someone wanting to live another year or so is, is an intolerable expense and so we simply declare that they are no longer a person. Um, when, uh, back in the book of Job, when Job is submitting to the will of God, he says, the, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, if the state gives personhood, if the state grants personhood, then the state can take it away. If uh, the doctor can grant personhood, oh, this, this child has a birth defect or this child has Down syndrome, we are going to deem this child not a person. Uh, if they do that, then uh, if they have the authority to give personhood, if they have the authority to bestow personhood, they have the authority to remove it. They have the authority to take it away. Now, of course, Christians, and this is Piercy's whole argument throughout this book, fantastic book, get this book, Love Thy Body. Um, she is saying that uh, in the Christian faith that soul and body, personhood and biology, um, personhood and facthood are, are woven together. They're all part of the same thing. Uh, we, don't, uh, we, we do not accept this radical dualism that separates uh, value and fact. God is the God of the whole world, and everything is woven together in it the way he wants. So, back to hermartiology. The word akatharsia, akatharsia means uncleanness. And uh, in future episodes, we're going to see uh, cognate words that mean something cl close to this. But we'll start with uh, akatharsia, which means uncleanness. And the New Testament uses the word to refer to a, a more moral uncleanness. In Matthew 23, 27, Jesus refers to the Pharisees who are whited sepulchers outside, but inside are full of all uncleanness. All right, so there's, a, there's a, uh, an image there, a metaphor there, just as the corruption of a tomb with its decaying contents uh, is foul on a physical level. So uh, the same thing is going on with moral hypocrisy. The, the pagan Gentiles had the same problem, and God gave them up to uncleanness, it says in Romans one twenty four. 
The Roman Christians had previously given themselves up to uncleanness in Romans 6:19, back in, back in their pre-Christian uh, uh, in their pre-Christian days, uh, but now they are charged to present their bodies to be slaves of righteousness and holiness. You used to be given over to uncleanness, now pursue righteousness and holiness. Uh, the Apostle Paul was concerned that when he came to Corinth, he would find that a number of the believers there would not have repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. That's in 2 Corinthians 12:21. Paul also lists this state of uncleanness as one of the manifest works of the flesh. That's in Galatians 5:19, And that those who are like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 21. The Gentiles, apart from Christ, find themselves in this state naturally. Past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. That's found in Ephesians 4.19. Christians should have nothing whatever to do with this state, fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. Let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Ephesians 5.3. Christians, nevertheless, have to mortify this tendency within them, what Paul calls our members which are upon the earth, in Colossians 3.5. The company that this uncleanness keeps is entirely disreputable. It's fornication, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence. And let me just say here that concupiscence is a great word, needs to be brought back. And covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul assures the Thessalonians that his appeals to them had not proceeded from uncleanness. 1 Thessalonians 2.3. So all Christians, whether in the ministry or in the congregation, are not called to uncleanness, but rather called to holiness. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.7. So holiness and righteousness contrasts with uncleanness. The contextual sins surrounding this uncleanness are consistently the sins of wanting, desiring, lusting, grabbing, me-firsting, and envying. This means that selflessness and selfishness are not just oriented in different directions, like the arrow of a compass pointing north on the one end and south on the other. Selflessness is clean, and selfishness is consistently unclean. When we put ourselves in the central room of the house, we find it impossible to keep that room clean at all. God in the time of the sickness, God in You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.